Welcome to Beth Takoon in our study of Joshua. I'm David Deacon, and I'm taking the responsibilities for the teaching this week as Tim is busy with other pressing matters. So first let me say that this will again be a bit longer than I planned for these teachings. Uh, the Torah portions we will discuss today bring up some ideas that are critical for Beth Takoon to hear right now as we move forward. So I'm going to take just a little bit of extra time today. Uh, there are once again a lot of layers and connections here because we're not just walking through seasons in the year and Torah portions with the seasons, <clears throat> but Beth Takoon is at a certain point in our development too. So my general topic is basically how we develop, how we grow up in the Lord. That development process is called salvation. It's good to see that this uh, point, this point in Beth Takoon's development as a body of believers fits into that same plan and that pattern of salvation. Something I think we need to touch base with and see this week. So I'm going to take some time to do that. First, though, I want to take some time to review. Last time I introduced the idea of spiritual seasons and listed some important themes of the season we are in now. We said that there is a pattern to the year designed by God, a pattern that is a kind of yearly salvation curriculum. So you thought you were out of school, you're not out of school. Okay, You're going through a curriculum every year. As we progress uh, through the pattern in successive seasons, God makes certain aspects of our spiritual growth easier for us to accomplish. So, for example, we talked about last time that we can always repent, and we should always be repenting. Um, we should always be about that business. But there's a certain season of the year in which God gives us a special ability to repent. And so that is what that spiritual season is about. Um, repentance is the emphasis of one step, one season, in the yearly cycle of spiritual growth. Last time, we talked about four interconnected themes of the spiritual season of the fall, which have their counterparts in the physical fall season, especially when we look at Israel and what's going on in Israel in the fall. Um, those four are, one, the coming of the rains, two, the sowing and sprouting of the grain crops, the, the barley and the wheat, the growing darkness, and the olive harvest. So we talked about those four. If there's one idea that connects these themes together more than any other, it's this one. We are in a time of the year when we are stepping up to be the bride, when, when God is taking a step back and handing more responsibility over to us, when we are preparing to be the light in the darkening world. We are launching into a six-month journey of what I call embodiment, meaning God is helping provide the context for us to put bones and flesh on our recent spiritual growth. So I call that embodiment. Let me just add something new here because we're jumping into the story of the spiritual year near the middle. The entire year can be understood through the lens of human development in which we undergo a rebirth in the spring at Passover, an adolescence starting at Shavuot, when we become personally responsible to the Torah, like a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. We go through that phase every year. 
and a beginning of adulthood in the fall, when our marriage to Hashem is completed and consummated. Throughout the winter, we're working toward final stages of deep union and great fruitfulness. And that fruitfulness, that light shining from us, is the life of self-sacrifice. So we touched on that kind of goal, the goal we're, we're reaching toward, the goal that this spiritual progress and this embodiment process is, is bringing us to is that life of self-sacrifice. So what does it mean that the bride steps up to be the bride this time that we're in right now when, she's, when we are doing that as the bride? Well, for starters, it means increased opportunity for making free will choices to show our love for our groom. We connect the idea of increasing darkness to this increasing free will, right? The darker it gets, the, the more God's light is kind of hidden, the more free will we have. The other side of that darkness is that evil flourishes as the darkness increases and is being empowered to rise up against believers. This leads to a cleansing of the body. And so that's something else we talked about. Another aspect of being the bride is receiving the seed and nurturing it and giving birth to it. Uh, The physical crops being planted and springing to life at this time of year are mirroring a season in which Yeshua facilitates the planting of the Torah in our guts, actually says that, in our guts and on our hearts, what is called the new covenant. And as we begin to consider now the portions of Lech Lecha and Vayera, let's add one more idea to what it means to be a young adult or a newly married bride. We can call this new theme embracing the new life. So a newly married person must be about the work of leaving behind his or her old life and learning what his or her new identity is, which is, in fact, what he or she was created to be in the first place. Husbands and wives, I'm sure you all have many stories to tell about the period of adjustment and the work of adjustment you went through, especially early in your marriage. I know it continues until the end of your marriage, but it's especially acute right there at the beginning. Um, Marriage and family are designed to be the classroom and the context for the elevated life, the life of self-sacrifice. As all you young parents can attest, the baby can't give back to you. You just have to give and give and give. Um, God didn't have to design us that way, but he did. And this self-sacrificial life begins even before the babies are born. A husband and a wife, newly married, they must immediately start the process of learning what it means to now be half of a single being. Truly, it is a time of great growth for each of them as they leave the old life behind. I've talked with married people, and I'm not married myself, and so that's why I hesitate to even say anything about marriage, but here we have it in, in the cycle of the year. It's, so, it's all over the Bible. So um, anyway, I have talked with many married people anyway, and had you know talked with some who had certain initial notions of what the married life should be like, what, what marriage would solve for them or provide for them. And it doesn't take 
too long for them to realize that while some of those hopes are indeed the reality they're seeing in front of them in their new marriage, some of those ideas are really not going to be the reality. And so they have to release some of those hopes and dreams. And that's not a bad thing. God doesn't make any of us ideal people. And he doesn't give us the ideal marriage either, at least not without a lot of work and growth. So this um, coming to terms with the reality is a painful process. But once they are able to release that hold on their own vision and embrace what God has actually given them, only then are they able to fully direct their energies into growing up into what God made them to be, right? you got to let go of what you're clinging to, what you think it should be. And once you do, now you're free to really enter into what he's given you um, to work with. Whether we're married or not, all of us undergo this phase of development. There comes a time in all of our lives when we have to come to terms with what our life is shaping up to be. We start out with big dreams, lots of dreams. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be president. I want to do something big. This is great. The, the spiritual dimension is boundless. and In a way, the, the childhood is more connected to that spiritual beginning. Eventually, it has to come down to earth, though. And the earth is a place of limits, of boundaries. Eventually, those various pathways start to close down as we walk out our lives and the actual concrete person we are created to be takes on a more tangible form. Maybe we wanted to be a doctor, but the first semester of college biology, which is a tough one, showed us that wasn't going to happen. And so we adjust. We close down some possibilities. After some years of adult life following where God leads us, we wake up one day and we say, oh, well, this is what my life is. This is who I am. (laughs) It makes sense because God gave me a passion for such and such, and he gave me a burden for such and such. Truly, he made me to fill a certain niche in the world. It's maybe not glamorous. It's not always exciting like I imagined an astronaut's life is, but this is what I'm made to be. Now that I know Let me really enter into that and fully develop it. So in other words, we have to go through a certain point in our lives where in many ways we have to come to terms with the identity God has given us. And this process is part of the difficulty of the month of Heshvan, the month we're in now, when the seeds in Israel are being planted and just beginning to sprout and show what they contain inside. Beth We as a congregation are in the month of Heshvan in our history, are we not? We are at just the point where we are beginning to see the concrete shape of what we are to be in the next phase of our life. It's not an easy process coming to terms with it. But once we do finally see it, once the shape of our new identity as an adult begins to come into focus, then we can truly embrace and develop that identity with the goal of service, self-sacrifice. And so we're to be seeing as our identity swims into focus, we always have that goal in mind. How is this identity going to work toward the self-service that God intends for us? So again, this is a 
bittersweet time. In fact, the full name for this month we are now in is Mar Heshvan, bitter Heshvan. So this process of releasing the old self and embracing the new situation is perhaps more than anything else what Abraham is known for. So let's turn now to portions Lech Lecha and Vayera. Uh, this week, Vayera. Last week was Lech Lecha. We read in last week's um, Torah portion those famous words to Abram, Lech Lecha, literally, go to yourself. Abram, go find Abraham. Find who you are really made to be. Humanity, go to yourself. Walk with me on a faith journey to the destiny I've designed for you. So there's a lot happening right now in the calendar and in our history as Beth Tikkun. It's a difficult but exciting time in our development when we are beginning to see and accept ourselves in this next phase of life. And Abraham and Sarah are our companions through these few weeks in the year. So I want to go a bit deeper into why we are reading about Abraham and Sarah at this point in the year. One very vital aspect of this moment in time, this month of coming to terms with our identity and future, is renewing the original vision, touching again the first light of clarity. So these two go hand in hand, seeing our future and touching again the original vision. Abraham is the original vision. God gave us Abraham and Sarah as touchstones of the walk of faith. And by his design, we come again to that earliest of touchstones of faith at this moment in the year. We renew our belief in and commitment to that vision now. We are to see our way forward into the darkness by the light of that first flash of lightning. Right? Abraham was like that first flash of lightning that lights up the darkness ahead. And we are renewing our faith and vision in that. So what is the vision? What was that flash of light given to Abraham? Beth Takun, think about the point we find ourselves at now as a congregation as we talk about Abraham now. What is the vision we see in Abraham? First of all, it's leave everything behind. Go, and I will show you your inheritance. And this is what Abraham does, and he is blessed. And in reading about that at this time of year, we are encouraged. We can also be encouraged that though he's not perfect in that faith walk into his true identity, his inheritance, God is faithful. Notice this. Whenever Abraham tries to preserve his life, he stumbles. And so we see several cases of that involving his wife. She's my sister. I'm trying to stay alive. Do this for me, he says to her. Um, So he stumbles, but God always brings him back onto the path. And that's also an encouragement for us. This, you know, we don't have to be perfect about it. He's going to get us back on the path. There's more to the vision than this finding of identity. One of the key words in the story of Abraham is the word seed. This word occurs over and over again when God talks to Abraham about the future. God tells Abraham that his seed will be as vast as the stars in the heavens. And Abraham believed God 
And this was credited to Abraham as righteousness. He's saying, trust me, Abram, I'm going to change the entire world through you such that all peoples will count you as an ancestor. This is a mighty vision. And God does not leave Abraham without a witness, without proof. Hear this, hear this important point. Our faith is not blind faith. Blind faith is not a concept in the Bible. Yeshua said, if you don't believe me, believe my works, which are a witness of me. God always gives us tangible first fruits to support our faith. In the case of Abraham and Sarah, he literally gives them a miraculous seed as a first fruits of the promised future seed. That first fruits is Isaac. A physical proof is also part of the initial vision that goes along with it. We do not trust someone's vision without proof. And it is in this first fruits that the greatest test of all comes for Abraham. God says eventually, now take the seed I have given you, that precious seed, that miraculous seed, which is Isaac, and plant it in the ground in the land of your inheritance. Release it and let it die so that it can sprout in the land and produce a mighty harvest, many thousands of seeds. And so we have the story of the Akedah in these portions. Once again, Abraham is faithful. He has learned the great lesson that trying to hold on to the old life leads to stumbling. So he is quick to release when God says, let it go now. Let it die so that it can be resurrected. This too is part of the vision we read at this time of year. Beth Takun, what has our last year been, if not this releasing of the miraculous first fruits God gave us so that it can die? It is only in this kind of death that new life emerges. One seed is sacrificed to produce thousands more. One important reason we must come back again and again to the vision spoken to Abraham is that God doesn't always repeat the vision over and over again. He expects us to guard the vision. The vision is like a light that shines at the beginning. God may also speak to the second generation and the third, and he does with Isaac and Jacob, but eventually he trails off until it serves his purposes to speak it again, like he does under Moses. So hear this, Beth Takun, at this point in our journey together as a body of believers, we are expected to guard the vision, which God clearly spoke through those who came before us. Specifically, the one through whom God brought the original vision and who he anointed to lead us in the first phase of our journey with God. The vision he gave to Grant and Robin the vision not only directly spoken, but lived out in their lives, right? The proof, the tangible proof. In a sense, by us having to rely on the previous vision, we are being given the chance to walk at a higher level of faith. As we mentioned last week, time is an element of the darkness, and with increasing darkness comes increasing free will. Each generation heads further into the darkness for God's good purposes. The further we are removed from God's voice, the more faith is required to walk according to that vision. So here we are today in 2022, reading Abraham's story and being inspired and strengthened by it.
because we believe it. And that is a wonderful expression of faith in God. This is pleasing to God. Beth Tikkun, we must guard the vision given to the last generation. We cling to it, knowing that it is God who spoke it. We can trust that it was God who spoke when he looked, when we look at the evidence of what God did these many years through Grant and Robin, right? He doesn't leave us without a witness, without a tangible physical testimony, okay? The evidence is there. We still have a personal connection to God, of course. We're not solely going on previous vision. It's not that he is silent with us, but part of our lens Part of our lens for listening to him is what God has spoken clearly to our spiritual forebears. God will help us to walk out the vision, to put legs on it, to make it concrete to the degree we are given to do so. He will help us to fashion a body for the vision. But we must understand that the word God spoke to a prophet in the past does not change. We receive God's direction moving forward through the vision of the past, staying true to that vision. So let's take a rabbit trail for a minute to notice something about how we are meant to go deep in the study of the word and the world. And then we'll get back to Abraham and the vision. This topic of renewing the vision is probably not a subject you would have heard taught on very often. But it's one that emerges from putting together the calendar with the Torah portions. So as Grant often has shown us over the years, it's one thing to understand something over here, but when you recognize that this over here is clearly connected to this other story over here, and when you lay them next to each other and compare and contrast, you start to see in 3D, as Grant would often say. Grant would take something like Noah's Ark and compare it to the Tower of Babel. And by the end, you're not only seeing a progression from one to the other, but you're understanding each separately much more deeply, 3D. So that's what it's like when you're working with two elements like the calendar and the Torah portions. Considering them together suddenly makes 2D become 3D. But what happens when you add a third? What happens when you add human development next to the calendar and the Torah portions? And then the layout of the tabernacle next to those. And then the layout of the human body next to those. And then the layout of the whole Bible next to those and on and on. It's literally mind-blowing. Suddenly, it starts to emerge that everything in the universe is telling the same story. And that story is salvation, Yeshua. It all tells his story because it's all made through him. It's all made through the word. And so that's the adventure I've been on in, in the last years. I tell you, it's just been, um, it's been a wonderful adventure. So let's make a few quick connections now to the book of Joshua. So actually, we'll leave the story of Abraham behind. We'll move on to Joshua. Um, Israel's coming into the land. Israel coming into the land is the realization of the vision given to Abraham and repeated through Moses. The book of Joshua is showing us how Israel embodies that vision to be numerous and to be a blessing to the world. The land of Israel is quite literally a body for the nation. Throughout the book, we will see the nuts and bolts of the embodiment phase of salvation, the battles to cleanse the vessel, 
the specifics of dividing up the land and settling into homes. This embodiment work is the work of the winter in the yearly cycle of salvation. Okay, so in other words, what, we're, what, what we go through in the winter is what the book of Joshua is all about, this embodiment process. So not only are we seeing embodiment in the book of Joshua, but near the beginning of their experience of taking the land, the people touch base with the vision, right? This is what I've just been talking about. We've got to keep touching base with the vision. We have to show mare. We have to guard that vision. Uh, the, the way that they do that is fascinating. In this case, God allows the people to walk through the vision given to the last generation, the generation of the Exodus. They walk the same steps as the last generation. The first events in Joshua echo the Exodus and journey to Mount Sinai. In Joshua, they walk out the Exodus again. This is God saying, remember, remember, remember the vision I gave to that generation and to even further back. By constructing for the second generation the same early context, the first generation walked through, God is saying, remember how I spoke to your forebears. Let's briefly go through some of these parallels between the Exodus and coming into the land. Early in Joshua, the people, one, cross over the river, two, celebrate the Passover, three, defeat Jericho, four, defeat Ai, A-I, right, that uh, name of that city, Ai, and five, renew the covenant at Mount Gerizim and Ebal. This is the exodus from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. Okay, so first of all, they cross the river miraculously, much like Israel crosses the Red Sea with the waters pulling back to reveal the dry land. Remember the Red Sea, God is saying. Remember that part of the vision. Secondly, they cross over just before Passover when the last generation set out of Egypt, right? Passover is all about the story of coming out of Egypt. And that happens in the spring. And so they cross over the Jordan in the spring when the waters of the Jordan are raging. So they pass over the waters, then celebrate the Passover, another reminder to them of what the last generation experienced and why they put them on the path they are on, right? What did they experience that made the people so intent on this path? Well, they, nothing less than walking through the Red Sea, right? Like, there's a reason they're on this path. Right? There's a reason they are sure that this is the path. Uh, third is the battle with Jericho. Jericho is like the battle against Pharaoh's army. So how is that? In both cases, it is really God who handles these first battles. The conquering of Jericho is uniquely miraculous. March around seven times, blah, blah, blah. Um, this is God saying, I'm the one who's bringing down Jericho for you. So both the battle with Pharaoh's army and Jericho are God showing himself as the true source of victory over the enemy. And this is how we are to see Jericho. Next comes I. I is a stumble. Remember that at Jericho, Achan takes some of the forbidden riches and hides them for himself. This leads to Israel's defeat at I. They have to go through a whole process of discovery before they can again attack and defeat I. So I is a bit of a misstep. We find the same kind of battle in the Exodus story, the battle with Amalek 
on the way to Mount Sinai. Why does Amalek attack? What is the power of Amalek? Amalek attacks when the people doubt God, when they say at Rephidim, is God with us or not? Achan has the same doubt about God. He would not have tried to take from the banned things if he really believed God was with them and watching everything. At I, God says, remember Amalek. That's also part of the vision, Israel. Finally, God brings them to a Sinai experience, the renewal of the covenant at Mounts Ebal and Gerizim, in the writing of the Torah on high, right? Remember, Joshua's up there. He writes it on the plastered stones. Remember the covenant at Sinai, Israel, God says. Remember the vision I gave to that generation. Notice, by the way, that the vision is as much what that generation experienced of God while walking with him as it is what God directly spoke to them. So as a final point, let me suggest that one important way to see both Joshua and especially Yeshua is through the lens of their dogged faithfulness to the vision given to given generations beforehand. Yeshua guards the vision over and over again. And this is pointed out especially clearly in the first gospel of Matthew. We see that Yeshua fulfills prophecy. The prophecy, the vision given to prophets in former generations is a guide to him, though it is up to him to put a concrete form on the vision. Of course, he also has a direct connection to God, and we even see God speaking audibly at a couple of points for the benefit of those around Yeshua. Yet the writers of Scripture want us to understand that Yeshua knew how God spoke in the past and that he stayed true to that vision. And so let me just finish with a personal story about um, staying true to, to the vision. So when I was um, in China, I eventually met up with um, two women who were doing a work in a, in a village, um, an amazing work among some very downtrodden minority people in China. And um, one of the two of them was from Eastern Kentucky. She was an American. Um, her name was Elaine. And um, she was just, she just loved God with all her heart. And, you know, I, I went and I lived in that part of Kentucky um, for a while. And a lot of those people never got out of the county before they died. Well, here was someone who was born there in a log cabin. That was the home that she was brought home to um, without a car. They had horse and carriage. I know she was only in her middle age when we were there in China together, but they were living in the holler in Kentucky. And, um, and so she followed the Lord. He led her to Taiwan where she studied Chinese, and she spoke it fluently beautifully, beautifully. Um, she was an amazing Chinese speaker. But uh, a convert of hers, um, Vicky, uh, joined with her. Vicky had become uh, a believer when God did a miraculous healing of her daughter who was born with a deformity in her leg. They wanted to amputate eventually. And Vicky said, Lord, if you're really there, then I give my life to you. Heal my daughter. And he did. And so these two were out in a Chinese village. Um, it was... Um, a collection of villages who had all lost their land, been moved off of their land, and it was a reservation. And uh, they were trying to help these kids and in an education way because these kids were slipping through the cracks. 
uh, with the education. They didn't speak Chinese well. They have their own language. And um, the, there was one day, especially, when Elaine was standing in front of a huge building that was built in the reservation. It was empty. And God literally showed her all these kids playing on the, in the concrete in the courtyard and in front of the building. She knew um, God was talking to her about that they needed to be steadfast and staying with that place, even though it was very difficult and the government was making it difficult and all of these roadblocks were in the way. She had the vision. She was the mature one. Well, there came a point after I joined them, and I was just a young one back then, um, when uh, there was a little bit of Elaine, who was a very humble woman, was saying, I really shouldn't be leading it. Vicki, you're the businesswoman. You lead this thing. Well, the problem was Elaine was the one who was given the vision for the work, not Vicky. Well, Vicky said, fine, I'm the business person. I'll take the reins. We struggled and we struggled and we struggled because Vicky was not the one who was given the vision. Elaine was the one who had the vision. And so once we got, got back, got recentered, and Elaine was the one making the final decisions once again, Things smoothed out once again. We had to stay true to the one who had the vision. So anyway, that's just a story from my own um, background about, you know, it made a big impression on me um, living through that. So I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Um, may God bless all of us on this journey that we're on today, and may he make us into the people that he wants us to be. Shalom.